Hey there, this is Keith Carpenter. I get to pastor Epic Life Church, and it's such a, a blessing that you're watching this today. I want to encourage you to in, um, enjoy this message and enjoy this worship and time. But I also want to encourage you that if you're listening from a different place in this city or in this country, and you have a local church that you're part of, that you invest into that local church. It's really good that we can hear people online, men and women teach and expound on the scripture. But in the long run, we need to go back to our local church and be part of that community. So again, it's a blessing having you here. I pray that this is a blessing to you and I want to encourage you to invest in your local community. Have a great morning. Sometimes I think and look about what God's doing in, in our life in a small church in North Seattle in a place that a lot of people have run from. If you don't know this area, 105th and Aurora is the the crossroads, the outlying areas of four different neighborhoods. And so they seldom get seen very often, you know, only in a negative light. God's called us to the center of that, uh, the, the roughest street in Seattle to bring change in this. And while we're doing that, God has allowed us to be this outpost church to encourage people and love on people as they're coming through. And, uh, and so when people do come through, I just it's such a blessing to be counted worthy as a church that God's allowed people to be here for all time. And may we do everything we can to bless and care for people, humans. And if anything, this morning, the sermon is about that, humans, real people, real people. You know, sometimes things, things just don't turn out the way we are hoping. Actually, mostly, most of the time, things don't turn out the way we hope them to, Right. And you just have these plans and these goals, and you're looking forward to something happening with these parameters, and it just seldom happens like that, right? We wait. We, we envision. And seldom do those things that we envision actually happen the way we envision. We have expectation in so many things. Even that which God called us to often, we go around going, not what I expected, God. You called us through this, but this is not what I expected. This is not how I expected it to turn out. In fact, I trusted you in this, Lord, and now this? Really? How am I supposed to act in this? I don't get this, Lord. We need to pray to seek God in our waiting for him. Psalm 62, verse 5 says, Let all that I am Wait quietly before God, for my hope is in him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress where I will not be shaken. My victory and my honor come from God alone, not from humans, not from people, not from what we do, from God alone. He's my refuge. He's a rock where no enemy can reach me. Father God, I thank you for this morning, and I do praise you for the word of God, this, this canon that we have that we can reach and hear your words who are spe as being spoken to us. And so I pray this morning that you would speak to us <clears throat> in the place that you need us to hear it. We're all in a different place, Lord, and I pray we would realize that and understand that, the baggage, the stuff we've brought here, the good and the bad, the, the heart swell, the understanding, the, the joy, whatever it is, Lord, that our space right now, that you would speak to us personally, and that you would speak to us corporately. 
and that we would follow after you because of what you're saying. So, Father, would you uh, work through Epic Life to truly see North Seattle transformed by finding an abundant life in you? May we be part of that, the miraculous of that, even though it sounds like it sounds crazy to most people. I believe you're involved in the, the crazy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the, the term Advent uh, is where we're in this Advent season, and it's really beautiful. I don't know about you, but I didn't grow up in a tradition that celebrated Advent. Anybody else not grow up in that tradition? Yeah, so a lot of us, we don't really, really know what Advent means. And so over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to talk about Advent a little bit, kind of as a, a side uh, note, structuring and helping us understand the story of Christmas a little more. And so this Advent thing is important. And in a lot of ways, Advent just means to wait, or it actually means the coming, uh, to come. And so we, we, uh, we are a, a waiting people. Humanity is a waiting people, always anticipating what will happen next. Always. That's all we do. It's like we are constantly waiting what's going to happen. We're never here. In fact, I would propose that there's no such thing as the present. We like to think that we're in the present right now, but the present is already gone as soon as we talk about it, and we're always looking forward to what's next. There is no such thing as right now, because right now is always gone as soon as we talk about it. So we are awaiting people. We are waiting to be older, waiting for the next grade, waiting to graduate, waiting for college, waiting for dating, waiting for marriage, waiting for kids, waiting for jobs, waiting to die. <clears throat> we're just waiting. There's a big space in between job and death. I know. There's a lot of waiting in that as well. We're just, we hope. There's a, there's a lot of waiting in our life, right? We're newer and bigger and better and, and more. We're waiting for to win. We're waiting to be changed. We're waiting to become. We're waiting to succeed. We're waiting to grow. We're waiting for the next thing constantly. For happiness, waiting. For fulfillment, we're waiting if only I could be, if I could do, if I could have, I'm waiting for the next bigger, stronger, richer thing in my life. Always waiting. Our attitude during our waiting displays our faith. You know, we are awaiting people, and we're always going to wait. We can't get away from it, right? We're always remembering <laughs> and always waiting. But our attitude during waiting describes our faith. It betrays our faith, if you will. Waiting. Advent means to come. In fact, the, the Advent thing really didn't even start with Christmas. It had nothing to do with Christmas. You know, it's around four, the fourth uh, century or something like that. The Gauls, which were part of the uh, um, France and Germany and pretty much all of Europe were the, the Gauls and kind of this, this pagan world. Uh, and when they came to Christ, it opened up this whole avenue into Britain and opened up the avenue into the east even more and then into um, Spain. And, and the Gauls came to Christ and the whole, the whole continent area opened up this avenue to get back to Jerusalem and all this. Anyway, in the fourth century, fourth to fifth century, they started celebrating Advent. And this Advent idea was actually more about the um, preparation of new baptisms that were going to happen in the, the world. And the whole continent was turning over for Christ, and people were coming to Christ all over the place. So it wasn't really a biblical thing. Advent is not in the Bible. 
this this idea advent is not in the bible necessarily but it be, it came to um be understood in this preparation of baptisms for new believers and then it was kind of transitioned over into a, a feast of the epiphany or the the feast of the incarnation uh, that Christ did come at some point, but not celebrating a birth necessarily. In the 6th century, they started beginning to think about the Advent was about Christ himself, but not about Jesus being born, but about his return someday in the future. And the, and the people of God in the 6th century were looking forward to the return of Christ and the Advent of that, what was to come. Somewhere in the Middle Ages, 13th or 14th, the Advent started to turn and become about Christmas as well and celebrating a liturgical Advent season uh, with the liturgical calendar as a whole. And so it became that. And so a lot of Protestant churches don't even talk about Advent at all, or if we do, it's very, very small. But the idea of Advent is super awesome. It says, it's really about this waiting for Christ to come, remembering that Christ did come, and then waiting for him in eternity. Um, the Bible is full of this this epic story of waiting, awaiting people, a people of Advent, if you will. The whole, entire Bible is full of this. Uh, really waiting for the Messiah to come and then the Christ, Jesus, to return someday. In fact, it starts right at the beginning in Genesis 2, the first prophecies of Jesus that, that uh, the, the children, the child of Eve, would step on the enemy's head, became the Advent of waiting for Jesus to arrive. Such a beautiful thing. Um, we'll read one passage here in, in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 17. 300 prophecies would point to the Messiah. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 says this. Look, the virgin will conceive a child and she will bring birth to a son and will give him the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And people started looking for the Messiah to arrive. The Christmas story, here's it come. You know, my problem with the Christmas story is it's way too clean. The Christmas story that we see is super, super clean. The nativity sets are just, honestly, they're weird. I've got a couple of pictures of nativity sets. Did you guys get those pictures? So here's the nativity set. Uh, this is actually painted in 1200. I don't know what the glowing things are. I know halos, these, the glow, what, there's no such thing as a glowing thing over somebody's head in the Bible. Does not exist. I don't know where the thing of halos came from, but this whole thing, look how clean and, and nice it is. And Jesus, I think, is, is either thumbs up or he's pointing up. I'm not sure what he's doing there. But he's like fully aware. Everything's clean. There's a, a basket of eggs here, which I want to tell you, if you have chickens, they don't lay eggs. I have chickens and we don't get any eggs. And they're like $10 eggs. And there's a basket of eggs there. I don't know where those came from. Nice, clean sheep, nice, clean shepherds, nice, clean everything. The nativity sets are just clean. Let's look at the next one. This is, and then we have this. I'm not sure what we're teaching kids with nativity sets. We're teaching them that the first Christmas was this perfect spot with probably perfect people and perfect animals. And it was, per somebody cleaned the hay. There is no crap in the 
manger, and the angels are right there. And again, the angel, I, I don't even know what to say about Jesus in this. <laughs> Ta-da! I'm here. That's kind of what it looks like he's saying. He's like an infant. Um, okay, one more for you. And this is, this is weirder. There's layers of weirdness to this. This is a, this is a Jewish family. And it certainly isn't kosher. I mean, we've got a strange thing. I started going through nativity sets, and there are some bizarre nativity sets out there. We have just made the nativity um, weird. We've made it. Go back to the previous one, if you would. We've made it a, a bunch of perfect uh, beings with perfect haircuts, with perfect smiles, with perfect little halos over their heads, and all the animals are smiling. I don't know any animals that smile. And these perfect angels and the perfect star. And I think it hurts us to look at the nativity set in perfection. Because it kind of does this thing in our own soul of going, I can come to Jesus as long as I'm perfect first. Obviously, these people were chosen to be in this nativity set because they're perfect. There's no blemishes on their skin. There's there's no dirt. There's nothing. It's just perfect. The perfection of nativity sets are are dangerous, and I kind of think we need to de-halo the the nativity sets. So the rest of this is going to be about that. The first Christmas, it was actually full of real people. You know, Bible people are real people. I, I don't know if you know, but sometimes we read the Bible and we read through it, and it's like, this, uh, these perfect people who had, had God's ear because they did the right things at the right moment. And the fact is, the people in the Bible are real, real humans with real lives, with real emotions, with real pains, with real frustrations, with real discouragement, with real n- notions of asking God where he is. They're real people. Let's read the Christmas story from Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth in a village in Galilee. So a little little vision of where this is. The province of Galilee is super far north, 80 miles north of of Jerusalem, and, and it's up there, and there's kind of these country folks that were that were present up there, and um, that's Galilee, um, and and so down farther around Jerusalem in that area, there's a little town called Bethlehem. And the angel came to a virgin named Mary. And a virgin, this is an adult crowd, means this woman has never had sex with a man. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. And so these guys were engaged. And that time, the betrothal, the engagement, meant uh, they were married, but without coming together in in a sexual relationship. And so here they are in this this space, and she's alone still because they're still staying apart. But they're they are almost legally married. And to break that engagement, they would have to file divorce. I mean, it was a, a legal thing. And so Gabriel appeared to her and said, "Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you." And in our head, we see this Mary laying on her bed, and angel comes in and bright and lovely and soft, gentle, and 
not scary at all, says to Mary, ah, I just want to tell you something. The reality of this story is Mary sitting there on her bed or in the corner or outside, wherever it is, and this angel appear. And every instance of an angel in the Bible is male, big, shiny, and really scary. And people, when they see it, they're not just, oh, they're like freaking out scared. Mary was a, a, a girl, probably 14 years old somewhere around there, 13 to 16 years old. She was a girl, and she was in the corner, and, and, and this angel came, this big, uh, scary angel appears in her room and, she, and just appears, number one, just appears in her room. She's a 14-year-old girl, and she's looking up and trying not to get completely freaked out. I love how the New Living Translation says, confused and disturbed. <laughs> Mary tried to think, now what could this mean? She was a little more than confused and disturbed. The Bible would even say about men of God and and strong men in the past and kings and in the future about John that they would fall on their face terrified in front of an angel. So maybe there's something about Mary that she had a little composure and and she did step back and go, what's going on here? But I bet it was a lot of fear and, and a lot of anxiety. And the angel says, oh, oh sorry about, sorry about uh, scaring you. Don't be afraid, Mary. For, I have found, for God has found favor in you. So Mary's thinking through this. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you'll name him Jesus. <clears throat> and he will be great and will be called the son of the most high God. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor, David. And he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, but how can this be? And so she's reasoning, she's thinking through, she's wondering what's going on, and she's just realized that the angel said, you're going to give birth, and she's going, I'm a 14-year-old girl who has never had sex with a man, and I'm not even married. How can this happen? This is impossible. The angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the baby to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. Mary responded, I'm the Lord's servant. May everything you have said come about me, well, uh, about me come true. And then the angel left her. So the story continues, right? And here, here is, here's Mary and Joseph. They're about to be wed. Mary has got to be afraid. I don't know how this conversation went later on, but it couldn't have been a great one. Because Mary at some point had to tell Joseph. Mary at some point had to tell her family. Mary at some point was going to start showing, and people are going to be asking questions. Little towns, little town of Nazareth was a tiny little town that people were going to talk about another person pretty fast. Gospel tra- or go- Gossip travels fast, right? And so here, Mary, she's walking up to mom and dad, and she's walking in. Maybe some of you experienced this moment when you walk up and you know you have something hard to say to mom and dad, and it's going to be very, very difficult, and you know that they're going to be mad. They weren't just going to be mad in that day and age. They were going to probably take her out and stone her. That's a different kind of mad. That's a different kind of, hey, just get out of our house. We don't want to see you anymore. How could you let this happen? Or even uh, the penalty for adultery was stoning, like death. 
We can't even comprehend what that would even be like. And so Mary, maybe she said, okay, let it be done. Then she went, oh my goodness, think of the repercussions of this. It's about to happen to my life. Walking around that village and knowing the penalty of, of what looked like sin. Joseph, on the other hand, was probably 30, maybe 40 years old. I know that we don't really want to put those two things together, 14 and 30 or 40. But that's probably likely. Um, most men would die in that day and age at about 45 years old. And so, so shortly after Jesus, after about 12 years old, we wouldn't ever hear about Joseph again. So it's likely that he was older and he passed away in some way. So maybe he was 30. Maybe we'll give him some grace. He was 28. And, and he is this man who has waited patiently. The, the families have come together to, to say, okay, Mary and Joseph, this is the right thing. We're going to have you guys get married. <clears throat> and Joseph has been working hard. He's been putting his family together or his, uh, his uh, life together, his, his house together, probably building a room, getting a room ready inside the family uh, courtyard perhaps. Uh, because that's how it worked. You just added a room on inside the family courtyard. And so he was getting ready to welcome Mary in. There was going to be a dowry attached to that from Mary. And, and Joseph then would welcome her into the family of Joseph. And it was going to be the celebration. And everybody in the town was going to be super happy about it. And we've been sending invitations out. And we're getting ready for the dance and the wine and the festivities of it all. And Mary has a hard conversation with him at one point. Mary has to go, so, I've got something to tell you. <laughs> Mary told him before Joseph heard from the angel. And so there was this super, super hard moment. I don't know what that conversation went like, but perhaps something like Joseph sitting there in stunned awe, in stunned pain and hurt, of going, wow, Whew didn't see this coming. And wait, it's the, it's God? What? How could this even remotely be, Mary? Are you crazy? You're going to have God, the Messiah? People have been talking about that forever. How could it be you? How could this be happening right now? I can't believe it. And obviously, through the scriptures, we see that Joseph didn't believe her. <clears throat> That's why the angel came later on. Can you imagine Joseph thinking, all eyes in this town is going to be on me. Everybody's going to be looking at me. This is hard. This is horrible. This is terrible. And the story just gets worse. The fact is, is that Mary and Joseph were just an ordinary couple. An ordinary couple. And we really wouldn't have blamed them for tapping out. We wouldn't have blamed Joseph for what he was about to do, is divorce her secretly and kind of, he was a good man, so he was going to kind of, let her live with her parents and just quietly divorce her and try not to let anybody know. You know, the fact is that God chooses real people that we wouldn't choose to do real things that we wouldn't do in ways that we would never consider. Things we believe are impossible and probably are without God. Luke chapter 2 goes like this. At that time, the Roman emperor... Augustus decreed that the census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. It was the first census of its kind. So why were they taking a census? Why do governments take censuses? Taxes. That was it. They wanted to know how many people, how much money they could get, and so that's what they were doing. They don't care about the people. This is the Roman Empire from Rome. They don't care about a podunk little town uh, called Nazareth. They don't care. 
Um, and so, verse 3, all returned to their own ancestral downs, towns to register for the census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. And so Bethlehem, down by Jerusalem, is 80, 70, 80 miles from Jerusalem. Walking probably took them three days to get down there of daylight walking. Uh, and, and Bethlehem was near Jerusalem where King David was born. It was known as the, the city of David, although it was just a village. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee, Joseph did. And he took with him Mary, his fiancée, who was now obviously pregnant. When you say obviously pregnant, she was nine months pregnant. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her first child, a son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no room available for them in the inn, in the lodging. So here's this story, a three-day journey. Um, Christine and I, when we first had our first child, Connor, uh, he was a very large baby. And, and I can imagine me saying to Christine, uh, it would have been the 21st of December, saying to her, hey, sweetheart, let's go horseback riding. In fact, not just horseback riding, let's go from Winona, Minnesota to uh, the Twin Cities. Let's just ride. Let's just do a journey. It sounds fun, doesn't it? She would have looked at me like I was a crazy fool, right? There's no way. We could barely drive anywhere, walk anywhere, do anything, because she was like, oh, he was a big baby, and we weren't doing much. And I can imagine how this little conversation went. Joseph was saying, well, we have to go. And Mary was saying, well, okay, I guess we'll go. She got onto a donkey and for three days rode to Bethlehem. And when they got to Bethlehem, the little end story is interesting. Because there probably wasn't a Motel 6 in Bethlehem. There probably wasn't a motel of any kind. There probably wasn't a hotel of any kind. In fact, this word might be a little different than what we think of as an inn. It might relate more like to a hostel kind of, kind of idea, but even more, it probably related to um, a family compound of some kind. You see, everybody was coming into Bethlehem, so there was a lot of people coming into Bethlehem. It was a little tiny village, and people were coming because their family was from Bethlehem, and so they were returning where their family was. And perhaps these people were coming, and they were finding their family compound where people had made rooms and added on, and they were staying in there. Perhaps, it's just possible, I don't know, that Joseph and Mary found their family compound. They opened the door, and inside was uncle and aunt and cousins and nieces and nephews, and they looked up, and they saw a couple who were unmarried and very pregnant and going, oh, no, 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 no. There's no room for you here. Because I'm thinking in a, in a hotel, and I see somebody pregnant, I'm going to go, whoa, you're pregnant. I'm kicking somebody out of a room. You're pregnant. Come into the lobby. I mean, come on in. We're going to take care of you. We're going to care for you. Somehow, there was no room for a pregnant lady in the first century where there was no doctors. I think it was probably more like a family saying, sorry, no room for you. We're not going to take that on our stigma in this town. Our name means something, and we're not going to take you, you two. Not that girl, Joseph. Not that girl. Not in this small town. We can't do that. Some of us have been closer to the story than we like to admit because we've said it to somebody or it's been said to us. No, not you. You've done way too much already. 
you've done, there's too many scars, there's too much baggage, not anymore, stay out. Well, they would turn around and maybe be pointed to a manger. The manger was not like this. The manger, there was no manger like this. They didn't have barns. It was a cave. And it wasn't a cave that had high ceilings and stalactites and crystals glowing in the background with lighted candles everywhere. It was a cave for animals. There were no lights. <laughs> there were no candles. There was nothing pretty and, and warm and cozy about it. They went into this cave, and on the floor maybe was some hay, but it also had what animals put on floor after they've eaten grass all day. And it was everywhere. And it smelled. And if you know what a manger is, it was a, it was a thing where they would eat from. It wasn't this nice little square thing that we put on our display and we, we put some nice new straw in it and baby Jesus just miraculously fits perfectly in this thing. It most likely, it was up against the wall. It was this big thing. This is what it was in my barn when I was growing up. The manger was against the wall and the feed would come in, the hay would come in, and the animals and the baby lambs would be in the straw and in the hay and in the manger pooping in there as well because that's what baby animals do. And so here this manger scene and, and, and Joseph comes in and he starts scooping up the poop and he knows his wife is about to pop, literally. I don't know if that's PC. But she's about to give birth. And he is frantic. He's sweating. He's frantic. He's annoyed that no, his family wouldn't take them in. Mary is sitting there. Probably not. Oh, it's okay, Joseph. She's like, it's coming now. It's coming now. And it hurts. And they're in a, a stank little cave on the edge of town with, this, with animals around who were not lowing at night. Sorry. They weren't just lowing. I don't even know what lowing means. Lowing? They were mooing and bleeding and neighing and, and walking around and doing what animals do in a barn, in a stall. Joseph goes to the corner. He cleans up some stuff. He brings some hay in. If he found some, he, he makes it nice quickly. And now she's giving birth. Men and women, how many of you have been in a birth? No, don't. you've all been in a birth. You were born... But you've seen this, right? You've seen this happen, and it, and it wasn't, man, it, there's a lot of screaming going on. And there's a lot of anxiety. And there's a lot of, why is this happening to me? This is the worst thing on earth. And give me something to grab a hold of. And in our hospitals, there's epidurals, there's C-sections, there's nurses all over the place, there's like equipment and all this kind of stuff, and they're ready to catch the baby, they're ready to sew things up and keep the blood from happening, they're ready, but it wasn't happening in the nativity. These were real people in the first century. Real people. Real people. They gave birth, and it was painful, and it was horrible, and Joseph was the one receiving the baby. Not a team. The nativity needs to be dirtied up a little bit. These were real people who heard from God and went through real life, heard from God. Wow, God, you told me to do this, and now this is happening? We can't even find a place to stay? Hello? You're the one who sent us on this mission. And I don't know if Joseph was this man, but if in my, I probably would have been cursing a little. What's going on? And you're, we're going to have the baby now? The census is happening now of all times. Now, 
can we just have the baby first? Could you put this off for a little bit, God? What's going on here? Mary and Joseph, I guarantee you, walk down this stretch, and they're under their breath is going, oh, what's going on? They probably weren't singing praises and Christmas carols. The manger, the swaddling clothes, swaddling clothes are pieces of cloth that you wrap around dead people to bury them. It wasn't a comfy little blanket, towel, some cleaning oils. He didn't sit up and go, I'm here. <laughs> he was crying. You know what babies do? Babies poop and pee. And in swaddling clothes, you know what? They didn't have diapers. We tried cloth diapers for two days. It doesn't work. <laughs> it's the streak thing up the back. And I mean, it's, it's a horrible thing. Jesus was not this, this little baby who didn't cry. It wasn't a silent night. He was a baby, a real human baby, the incarnate God. <clears throat> we call out to God, and Mary and Joseph, I'm sure, called out to God, and they were like, I did it right, and this happened? <laughs> we did it right. Went through nine months of this in our town, in Nazareth, and it's been hell. Everybody looks at us sideways. Nobody really likes us. We're kind of outcasts. And now this happens? You could have fixed this a long time ago, God. Anybody ever say that to God? These are real people. I've said that to God. God, you could have fixed this. It didn't have to turn out this way. You could have changed this. This is not how I thought it would go. My advent, my waiting, my waiting life, this is not how I thought it would go. I can't tell you how many times I've told that to God about planting a church in Seattle, <laughs> about church life in Seattle, about family, about raising kids, about relationships, about this is not how I thought it would be at all. But God was Emmanuel with them. Isn't that beautiful? Like, think about this. In the nativity, if we see anything from the, the nativity set, it's Jesus, no, God was with them. Ordinary people. And the story gets worse. The story gets much worse, actually. They turn around in a couple of days or a couple of years, however long it was, and Herod's marching into the town of Bethlehem and slaughtering babies. Jesus, Joseph, and Mary flee to Egypt, and I know Joseph's a righteous man, and in his heart, he's thinking, those babies were killed because of me. <laughs> I'm the one who came here and brought this on the city. Mary was thinking the same thing. The story gets worse, right? They go to Egypt. There's a slaughter of babies. They go to Egypt and live in Egypt for a while. They come back. I mean, the story is real human. They were refugees in a foreign country in a foreign language. Traveling back and forth in Jerusalem to Egypt isn't a, a walk in the park. But we want, we want bigger, we want stronger, we want richer. You know, in the, in the nativity that I would have done, 
might have been something like, let's have Jesus born in Rome <laughs> to a Caesar. I don't know, power, influence, greatness, bigger, richer, stronger. I mean, he'd have everything. He'd be able to do and go and be and, and write rules or, or at least maybe Jerusalem. Like have him, have him born in Jerusalem to a prominent family who could turn the tide of things and, and, and take care of things and stand up and be bold and proud. Or maybe at least into wealth, not in a cave someplace where these guys had nothing. Something more, that's how I would have done it. If I were to write the script of the Bible, of the epic of, of, of the, uh, the world, that's not how God did it. God wanted Jesus. He wanted to be with us. And with us meant part of us and experiencing what we experience. For what kind of God do you want to follow? One who's been with us or one who really doesn't have a clue? You've been around people who don't have a clue. Sometimes, Sometimes I pause and think, should I say this? <laughs> sometimes, sometimes I meet with a new person who has come to the city and is like, I'm here to solve the problem of prostitution on Aurora. I'm like, oh, great. And you can just see this, like, you have no clue, <laughs> do you? You don't know what's going on here. You saw a couple movies maybe, but you don't know what's going on on Aurora, that's for sure. And you're going to go out and do this. And the pride and arrogance that comes in with, I know what I'm going to do and I'm going to do it. We're going to be the ones who can do this. And for 13 years, we've seen organizations and people come and go because they have no clue. Jesus, though, is with us and he has a clue. <laughs> he has an idea what we're dealing with. He has an idea what you're dealing with, what you're going through with this Christmas and what you're going through right now. We have, you've heard this, you know this church, we have a high priest who can sympathize with us. Hebrews 4. You got this? I'm going to look it up in my Bible and read it to you. Hebrews 4, 15. <laughs> 14. So then, since we have a high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses. And weaknesses, he's not just talking about, oh, he understands like body aches. He understands weaknesses, like our mental weaknesses, our spiritual weaknesses, our who we are weaknesses. He, he understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings that we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly, boldly to the throne with confidence. Why can we come confident to the throne? Because we understand Jesus understands us. We know that Jesus gets us. He has a clue. He's been there. He's, he's been, been in the cave. He's been around us. He, he's been in the, the muck and the mire and in, and in the poverty and with people. He's been there. So we can go boldly to the throne because we know that he'll understand us, our gracious God. There we'll receive his mercy, and we will find the grace to help us when we need it most. Oh, it's so beautiful. He's been in your shoes. He's been in your house. He stood where you're, you've stood. He can say with confidence, I understand. Me too. He gets it. Jesus.
You know, sometimes I think the advent maybe would be better understood as the adventure. The adventure. The advent, adventure comes from the same word of advent to come, but it's more like a, a risky, an exciting, risky, marvelous thing to come. Like this advent that we live, the waiting for Christ to come back, is this adventure life that he's given us to live and live well and live beautifully. Because we are real people in a real story like Joseph and Mary were real people. Jesus wasn't born so that if you're good and good enough, you would receive his promises to give you abundance and blessing and good stuff and a better job and a better house and a better car. That wasn't why Jesus came wasn't why he was born. Instead, the good news is that Christ came to suffer with us, next to us. To suffer as we suffer, to understand life as we understand life, so that he can be our best high priest. He knows what it's like to be sad. He knows what it's like to be poor. He knows what it's like to be hungry, to be lonely, to be in dysfunction, maybe a dysfunctional family. He knows what it's like to be abandoned, to be exhausted, to have questions, to say, God, where are you? Jesus knows the pain in such a way that he would say, God, where are you? And Matthew 27 says that. Jesus looks up on the cross and he goes, God, why have you forsaken me? Forsaken He's like, why have you abandoned me? Even God, the incarnate, Jesus, calling out to God. The good news is he's with us. He's for us in this real, real world. If he's that good, it really means that I can trust him. If he's good enough not to be born in opulence and something of of beauty and ease, He's good enough to come into our world, like into our world, not our nativity world, but into our world, the pain of our world, the substance of our world. If he's good enough to do that where he didn't have to, man, he's good enough for us to trust. He's good enough for me to look at this Christmas and go, I know there's going to be pain here. There's going to be a bit of dysfunction. There's going to be difficulty. There's going to be me going, oh, I did not expect it to turn out this way. I'm going to say over and over, God, I trusted you, and this is how it happened. But Jesus came into our world to be with us, not as a tiny baby, as a Savior who would die on the cross for us, give his life for us, to redeem us from the slavery of sin and give us the inheritance of the Holy Spirit when he would raise from the dead and be ascended into heaven. Father God, I thank you that we can hear that you're with us. And I pray that everything Epic Life does, everything that we do, uh, people who who are here for the first time, going back to Texas, uh, visiting, Lord, that everything we do, everything we touch, everything we walk into, we would have this, this confidence that you're with us. And even more now than Jesus walking with the disciples. God, thank you for leaving this earth. Because we have the Spirit of God, the inheritance from Abraham. We have the Spirit of God living within us, making his temple within us. We've called out to you, Abba, Father. I pray, Lord, this morning that if there's someone in this space who has never called to you, 
who have never realized that you want them. You've called them by name. You want them, them to be part of your family and a son or a daughter. I pray that that person would call out to you this morning. Repentance, as you said, repent and turn. The kingdom of God is at hand. Thank you for letting us as a church be on mission for what you've called us to do. And may we, Lord, may we honor that by being active in what you've called us to do, active in what you've given us to do, that we would step in and do, we would move forward, we would take the uh, the space of angst and asking questions, Lord, and we would take that and give it back to you. Lord, I thank you that you're okay with us inquiring. <laughs> you're okay with us doubting. I really think that when we doubt honestly, it leads us to truth. May we be a powerful and effective community of Christ here in North City. In the name of Jesus, amen. We're going to sing another song, and I just want to encourage you to, to use it as a time of response. So I'll be sitting here on the front row. If you'd like to come and talk with me, I'd love to talk and pray with you. If you want to stand, uh, you can kneel, you can sit, and just respond to what God's pressing on your heart. Don't let that go. You know, the thing is, is when we let the, the pressure of our heart, the spirit, when we let that go and we kind of push it over to the side, we, we make ourselves callous. And when we're callous, we don't hear as well. We don't have as much wisdom. We don't function as well when we become callous. We don't feel as well. I want to encourage you not to become callous.